Hello everyone, my name is John Williams and I'm the Chief Executive of the Institute of Leadership and Management and I welcome you to our monthly podcast show Leadership at the Edge where we share ideas across the community of leadership practice in every context, everywhere. Each month I'm joined by senior leaders from around the world to discuss their real-life experiences, to challenge some of the outdated leadership practices and to offer a fresh take on the issues that today's leaders face. We invite you to join the conversation via social media using the hashtag leadership at the edge or to send a voice message via the podcast page on anchor with your questions to our guest to register for future podcasts and events visit our website institutelm.com and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series and leave a review in this episode we'll be discussing the all-important topic of cognitive leadership and i'm privileged to have as my guest organizational change consultant leila rao With over 20 years of experience in the facilitation of organizational change initiatives, Leila is recognized for optimizing the ability of organizations to transform and, as the co-founder of Lean in Agile, applying her expertise and experience to increase the value and visibility of women through collective empowerment. In addition, Leila is the creator of the Compass for Agility framework and author of the book of the same name, enabling organizations to adapt innovate and thrive in challenging environments. So who better to share their expert insights and advice on how to transform yourself and your business through cognitive leadership than Layla? Welcome, Layla. I am so glad to be here, John Mark. This is, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, me too, actually, me too, because this is uh, something I think which... Um, in a sense, because it builds on the the, the foundation of, of agility and stuff like that for, for some years now, um, it's, uh, it's time that we moved on, I think, from agile to something else. And actually, that's really the basis of my, my first question, really. But with all of the, the many and varying examples, both good and bad, that we see all around the world, be interesting to get your take on the state of leadership at the moment. And are we actually getting any better? at leadership? I'd like to think so, but it's an intriguing question given the number of books written about leadership and all the thought leadership around it. Mm. We've been focused so much on leadership through leaders. It's every time we talk about leadership, it's for and by leaders. And I would really like to shift the focus to the people being impacted by leadership. What is their experience like? How do they see and define leadership? And one of the encouraging signs for me is I do feel like we have some leaders who are now getting it. The shift away from them and their personalities to their people. Mm -hmm. And one of the best leaders I work with, he phrases his job as discovering the best that our people can be Mm -hmm. and how I can help them continue to be their best. Right. Okay. Which is really, really interesting because it does exactly what you said, which is it takes the the res- almost the responsibility, but also the the capability for leadership away from that what is often seen as the core and central figure, and deposits it in the people who are both impacted by leadership and actually positioned to deliver it collectively for the organisation. Yes. And this is what Lean and Agile should have been all along. Mm. You know, we talk about delegating decision-making. And yet, Agile as a community, I mean, we've really emphasized and overemphasized Agile coach and Scrum Master roles. Mm. And I'm saying as somebody who's had both of those roles and titles. Uh-huh. Those titles were always supposed to be about how can we leverage the expertise we're supposed to have as these title holders to make it work for all the people who work inside Agile. And I don't think we've done that very well. Yeah, and do you think that's because the, historically we have very often taken the, the title that somebody has as not just a descriptor of the role, but the determinant of the role that they will play. And it sort of gives people a, um, an authority uh, implicitly, oh, yeah? Absolutely, yes. As an Agile coach, I'm the subject matter expert. Therefore, I get to define what is good Agile and what is... So when you have the same person doing the job and defining what good in that job means, Mm. it's very, very easy to mix up the two. And it doesn't have to be any negative intent. 
but it is very hard to maintain self-awareness and empathy when you're cushioned from the reality of not having to do that work. Yeah, and, and, and that's interesting because this, this element of leadership that, that you highlighted very first of all, actually, which is that the leadership resides in an individual and everybody else sort of copes with that, <laughs> is impacted by it. Um, do you think, b- before we get on to um, uh, cognitive leadership and indeed before we get on to examples of, of good leadership, do you think that we've, we are getting over this idea of leadership resides in the individual? Do you think we're actually sort of getting over it almost automatically or does it need to be pushed? I think it still needs to be pushed. Mm. We are seeing some shifts happen, but I primarily work in the U.S. with large governmental and private sector organizations. Mm. There is still very much, I'm the leader, this is my vision. How does everybody achieve my vision? As opposed to, what do we all need to be? Where do we all need to go? Mm-hmm. How do I make this work better for us? I don't hear that very often. That's really interesting. And because um, we did, we had quite a phase actually through the um, um, the sort of the, the, the leadership in the leadership environment with people saying, well, leadership is all about we, it's all about us. It's all about the, the, you know, the collective this and that. And then actually very often I found when things get tough, actually that, that sort of collegiality disappears and people start to get much more assertive about I'm, I'm the leader, I'm the boss, because uh, you know, I'm responsible and I'm accountable, therefore you have to do what I say. Do you think it's because we've had some challenging times? I think so. And, you know, entropy is a thing. Um, human mm. behavior, it's, it's always going to be cyclical. Mm. So when something tough happens, it's easier to default back to our norm. I think the other part of that, because of that trend towards a more inclusive approach, the expectations of those being led are higher than they were before. Right. They are faster to recognize the hypocrisy gap. Mm -hmm. They're faster to say, hold on, you guys said this is about us, but it's not really about us. Yep. So there there is always a gap. You know, leadership, it's not easy. And Mm -hmm. I work with some really good leaders and so often what they are told and what they see, it's filtered. People are on their best behavior with leaders. Yep. So it takes a very concentrated effort to go beyond that presentation mode. One of my clients has called it, I want to be on the assembly line, not the showroom. Ah, right. Okay. That's actually a really, really important difference, not just in, in um, perceptive and operational terms, but in the attitude and mindset required to deliver well in each of those. I, I really like that phrase, hypocrisy gap, because it sort of um, it, it embeds the responsibility for the hypocrisy in the people who are uh, responsible for creating it, if you like. And, and I guess that needs to be the leadership figures identified there. Absolutely. And I will give them credit. The leaders I work with, the good ones, hmm. they also pick themselves up and say, okay, you know what? We asked for data. I, yeah, I said I wanted to be inclusive. Okay. I'm obviously not getting there. How do I do better? And that to me is the most important part. It's the willingness to look in that mirror and say, how do I get better? Very interesting. And do you see any examples of uh, that kind of clearly, of course, you come across them in your client-based things. Do you see other examples of that kind of leadership? I think so. And so, you know, it's always cyclical. Media attention still tends to be focused on the more either old-school leaders or the mm. ones that are um, performative leadership. I'll call it that. Yeah. Get attention for who they are and their personalities. But I think you know the Me Too movement is a perfect example of the kind of leadership. Mm. They, Harina Burke, and all the people who've taken on this role, they, they have changed our culture fundamentally. And that to me is the best example of leadership. Um, you know, again, I'm in the US, so Black Lives Matter. Like, yep. The shift, the ripples of people being authentic and courageous as examples of leadership, and all the people who feel empowered by that, to me, that's the kind of leadership that we need and should celebrate more. 
Now, this is really interesting because you mentioned there the, the culture change that accrues from the kind of leadership that we would want to see in future. Do you think it's possible actually for us to have a almost a culture change framework by which we could measure effectiveness and leadership? And does that sort of lend itself to the cognitive leadership arena in which you're now working? <laughs> yes, because to me, connect together. So. Mm. Cognitive leadership is really about behavior change, both the individual and the collective. And of course, collective behavior change is culture change. Mm. Because what is our culture other than how do we show up and work with each other? That's our culture. So when you're doing cognitive leadership, you are creating culture change. Now, whether change is positive or not, you know, that depends on how you do it. (laughs) But most of the leaders I work for, or work with, they they want a culture of, in my words, engagement, empowerment, trust. Okay. What that gives me is the opportunity to say, all right, how do we do that? Sometimes the expectation is, well, you're going to get them all to do it, right? <laughs> yes. And I'm going to ask you all to change to achieve that outcome. You can yes. see that moment when it hits them. Yes, we ask for culture change. But we thought that meant everybody else would change, mm-hmm. not that we would have to change too. Yep. So the, the uh, I mean, it's all, almost now, I guess, cliche, this idea that, of course, we're, yeah, we all want change. Of course, we all want change in somebody else. We want change because we're right. We know that what we do is, is right. And in some ways, I guess, uh, for leadership figures, that we are right um, uh, idea is reinforced continually because there's sort of all this um, positive reinforcement that leadership figures get. Um, people come to them for decisions and all that sort of stuff. Uh, is there a is there a role there for um, us collectively as the employees of? the world's organizations, and particularly think about is there a role for women there in the development of this new mindset, this new cognitive leadership approach across the leadership community? Absolutely. So, you know, if we can think about the leadership community as the leaders, as the leadership coaches and facilitators who work around them, and as the direct employees, so much of cognitive leadership starts with observing behavior. And one of the common patterns is the people who are not traditionally in power tend to be better at observing patterns because it's a survival mechanism. That is how you learn to navigate anything. So, for example, I grew up traveling in different parts of the world. And when you are new to a country where you don't know the language and the culture, you learn to observe. When you're not the norm or the default, you are forced to learn to observe patterns of behavior. And that is what happens for women, people of color, people of different sexual orientation. If you are in the minority in the space that you are, you are forced as a survival skill to pick up patterns of behavior, to observe. I used to work for a a major organization and they had a new employee orientation. It was 200 people. And I was observing that for about a half a day. When I finished observing, I told the person I was working with, so you've already decided who's going to be your leaders for the next 20 years. And they looked absolutely like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Looking at who was called, who was identified, who was on stage, who spoke up, you already determined who your leaders are. And they were utterly shocked because that was not their intent. But we set expectations with our behavior intentionally or not intentionally. And leaders have a magnified spotlight on them, whether or not they always realize it. People observe leadership actions and behaviors, and that changes employees' actions. So actively changing our own actions and behaviors as leaders, that's the first part. So you asked me about women specifically. So one of the most leaders I work with are men because I work primarily in IT. And one fairly consistent pattern I've observed is they've never really had to stop and observe because most of them are very smart, good, capable men. They've always been on the leadership track. They don't know what it's like not to be on there. So, and I can't just go in and start having conversations like that. Like 
I'm very fortunate and my clients are pretty awesome, but these kind of conversations take a level of trust to begin to have this. So what I would say is for women in particular, or people of color, trust your instincts, look at the patterns of your own behavior and other people's behavior, share those in every possible way you can, sometimes with each other in safe spaces, sometimes take advantage of every feedback loop an organization offers. I know that we intentionally set up anonymized feedback loops in the places I work for to be able to get information like this. So if you see those opportunities, please, please take advantage of them. If you don't see them, ask for it. There is nothing wrong in most places that, you know, yes, you're all one feedback. Can we provide multiple ways for people to provide feedback? Right. Okay. And that's really, really important, isn't it? Because if the single channel for feedback is, oh, let us know through your line manager, or something like this. There are all sorts of structural impediments to any kind of honest feedback coming through a, a single channel, whatever that channel might be. Do you think there are, even in anonymized feedback loops, do you think there are impediments there to, to honesty, if we call it that? Absolutely. It comes down to trust. Mm-hmm. We have seen a global erosion of trust in each other, in institutions, in government, in religion, in everything. And so... When we ask people for feedback, we're literally saying, ignore everything you know about how the world works and be better. That's a huge burden to put on people. Mm -hmm. So when we ask for feedback, first do the hard work of building trust. And that's two things. Am I safe to share this feedback? And are you going to do something about the feedback? Right. Right, because the second one, of course, is, in a sense, is the other half of the coin that lots of people forget about, really, yes, because something does need to happen. Otherwise, and I guess we've all been through this, actually, we get entropy comes to the fore again, and people stop actually sharing the, that feedback. I, I really, really like that, that phrase used, which is, observing patterns is a survival mechanism. And, uh, and it's interesting, because I guess what we derive from that is that this is not a, um, in a sense, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a designed element of leadership programs, pattern observation. And I very rarely, in fact, I can't think of a time when I've seen that described as a necessary element of a, of a leadership program. Uh, how might we do that? <laughs> well, you know, it is supposed to be a core responsibility of agile coaches and facilitators. Mm-hmm. It's not called that, but it should be. How else are you supposed to facilitate change without observing? Right. I tend to define my job description as how do I get a couple hundred people to change the way they think and behave with no authority whatsoever? <laughs> yes. That's my role. So I go back to my lean and agile roots. And I was in lean first. So like that's still where my value system is grounded. And one yep. of the things I learned from system thinking lean is an organization evolved in its current state to meet a need. Yeah. What need was being met? And are those needs still the same today? Right. So to do that, to ask that question or to get answers, you have to observe. You have to listen. Talk to people. Say, why do we do this? How did this happen? You know, how do you all feel about this? If you're doing any kind of a lean practice, I don't understand how you don't listen and observe and collect data on patterns of behavior. Now, the fact that we have so many people who don't do that with these titles is a failure of those communities. Right. And and that's interesting because there's, there's a, in a sense, that, that idea of what problem uh, are we here to solve almost as an organization? The idea that the original answer to that question, when the organization was set up or the team was set up, would forever be the same doesn't make sense in a changing world. Um, let alone when we want to deliberately apply a change. So start by observing, then by listening, and then I guess by questioning the, the things that we hear and stuff like that. Um, is there, I mean, that demands quite a lot of courage, not just in the in the coach, in the facilitator, also in the audience. It does. So um, the icon I typically use for Zoom meetings and stuff is a chessboard with a mirror. 
So oh, right. um, I tend to think of my role as holding up a mirror to an organization. Mm-hmm. Let them see themselves. Take away as many of the lenses and filters as I can actively dismantle them so people can really see and then ask, is this, is this who you want to be? Because it is not my job or my role to say, be better. That is mm-hmm. on them. All I can do is hold up the mirror and say, do you like what you see? Most of the time, people don't. And that creates the incentive for change. It's not that I'm coming in and saying change. I'm holding up a mirror and they don't like what they see in that mirror. Very interesting, because the, the one of the terms that I've used quite often in the context of some of the concepts that we're talking about is, okay, mindfulness. We understand mindfulness, this awareness of ourselves and, and things like this and, and what we should then do about it. This feels to me a bit like, um, I would say, almost mindfulness plus or, or mindfulness on steroids or whatever we want to, however we want to put it. This is much more an, an active addendum to the mindfulness concept. And the active is the key word, yeah? I was going to say active is the key word. So a lot of work I do is around DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. And the phrase I use there is to be actively an ally and an advocate. And so leadership, the responsibility is to be a trusted advisor to your people, to be an advocate for your people. And being an ally and advocate to me is one, it is, actions, not just beliefs. It's what are you doing every single day? And it is, are you doing things that that move the needle? Are you doing things that make you feel better? And there is a, there is a phrase I heard from somewhere called, the axe forgets, the tree remembers. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the gap between intent and impact. Mm-hmm. That's so. Uh... Very profound, isn't it, really? It, it's very short, which I find helps with the profoundness, but I think it also resonates because it's the same action that is experienced mm-hmm. very differently. Yeah. In most leaders, they have power. They are the acts. Yeah. And so they're, in, they're focusing on their intent. They don't always get to understand the impact. Right. So, it's really that to me is why I emphasize leadership as a people being led because mm-hmm. they're the ones who are experiencing the impact. Ask them what good leadership is. Ask them what effective leadership is. Ask them what they need. Mm-hmm. That's a um, that's a big challenge for those uh, people like me uh, who grew up being told this is what you need to do and then you'll be a leader. And everybody will doff their caps and tug their forelocks and all this sort of stuff. And there is a, a huge demand in that for empathy in the proper sense of the word in, in the leadership figures. And then having empathized and and done the observation, the listening, to then actually sacrifice, and, I, and I'll use that word deliberately, the authority that comes with leadership, allegedly, without giving up the accountability. So sacrifice and giving up are the key words, mm-hmm. as, as you well know. Mm-hmm. So, I often hear well, all these soft skills, which is a phrase <laughs> that drives me crazy, um, because it's so insulting and condescending. Until we have an organization where AI bots work with other AI bots to do work for AI, mm-hmm. we're in the people business. Yeah. This, this is the world that we live in. And all these dismissive soft skills tags, it's really about people skills. I call them durable or transferable skills because this is how an organization prepares for the future. When people have good durable skills, because technology will change. You can hire someone for AI skills right now in five years, they're going to be outdated. But anyone who actively practices empathy, which by the way, is not a new concept, Gemba walks were founded in empathy. That was, what, 70 years ago now? So these are not new fuzzy words. These are words and concepts and philosophies that have been around for a while, Mm -hmm. but where people have taken the form but not the function. So I really want to get back to the function. Why do we have Gemba Walks? Not just how do you do a Gemba Walk, but why do we have them? Because we know the problems happen on the floor, that the people who do the work know best how to do it. 
So let's go back to those fundamentals. Very interesting. Well, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we could talk about this all year, never mind all day. And, uh, and most definitely, the, um, we would want to do more of this. But I'm just thinking a, a couple of points that, that really stood out from this, this um, so far, very short conversation. Um, the first one was the, the very first point that you made, which is the need to, to shift the leadership from the leader, in inverted commas, to the people, actually, those who are impacted by the leadership. I really liked that principle of the, the hypocrisy gap. I think that's a, a great piece of terminology, and, and, and it will certainly promote that idea much more. Um, and then this collective behavior change is culture change. And it's it's. I don't think I've heard a, a more concise or accurate description of culture change, simply collective, well, simply collective behavior change. And then the, the, the last point I've picked up so far is this idea of observing patterns as a survival mechanism. I think that's really, really important. A, a couple more questions, if I can. Um, the first one is, is there anything that could be done? Of course, there'd be something that could be done. Um, any collective action that might be taken towards a more cognitive leadership environment by people, uh, including, of course, women, who are not yet in leadership positions? Absolutely. And this is all depends on your context and your own you know, comfort zone. So mm. I'm not saying do what you can where you can, I think, is the operating principle. Mm -hmm. The first one is find a way to be authentic, to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's one thing that Leah does. We create safe spaces for women to come and discover their voice and practice skills in a safe space. But every chance you can find a way to speak up or amplify other people. It's, this is a collective part of it. Too often, women and people of color, marginalized groups, we have not been allies to each other because we're competing for that single spot at the table. So now it would be, how do we actively amplify each other? And that does not require power. That requires an ability to, to listen and say yes. Sometimes it's privately, sometimes it's publicly, but really amplifying each other's voices is one. Yep. Celebrating successes. So often we tend to default to, I failed or I didn't succeed. It's, and I get this feedback a lot because I tend to use self-deprecating humor and mm. I'm trying to watch my own language on that one. Yeah. It's really frame it as maybe not yet, mm -hmm. or here's what I've learned. Here's what I'm going to do next. Yep. And not in the context of policing each other, but giving each other real feedback mm. because as human beings, we are the ultimate feedback mechanisms. We're designed to be that. So let's take advantage of that innate ability and give each other constructive feedback. Right. Excellent. Um, and, and two quotes spring to mind on the back of what you've just said. One, one of them um, uh, was, um, we win or we learn. Uh, and, and I think that is, is, you know, we win or we lose is what normally people, we win or we learn. And actually, the, and the other quote is from Maya Angelou. And, and this is, really simple and and very powerful do the best you can until you know better then do better yes and that should be all of our like driving principle you know beating yourself up for what you didn't do doesn't help right shame and guilt they are human waste okay so if you experience those learn to use those to make a change to be better when you know better that I think it's one of the hardest things to do, but also the mm. most impactful yep. is when we know better, do better. Like the number of leaders who I've heard say, I didn't know then, I know now, like that's impactful. Yes, we yes. want a culture of experimentation. The single best thing leaders can do is say, I failed at this and I learned this way. Yep. So like that, and for all of us, you know, Maya Angelou, like, there is one person we should listen to probably is her. Oh, yeah. Because she has profound insights into human behavior. And she came from a place where she didn't have power, but she mm. discovered her power. So 
how do we learn? How do we yeah. learn to be better? How do we hold each other accountable? Yes, but also give each other grace to be better. Yeah, absolutely right. And and you're right. I've I've got hundreds of Maya Angelou quotes that I keep trotting out all over the place because it's just she's such a wonderful source of them. Um, one last question then. This is the classic uh, end of the conversation top tip question, which is what would be your one piece of advice for someone who's aiming to really to to promote, but also to demonstrate cognitive leadership in their career? So the single word I boil it down to is trust. Mm. Trust yourself. Okay, I will caveat that with this. Hone your skills to observation and listening first, please. And then <laughs> trust yourself because self-delusion is not helpful. So trust yourself and trust each other. This has been one of the lessons that I am working on right now. Trust is an act of courage. And it's, if you feel like there isn't enough trust in a relationship to trust, that's when trust is most needed. Right. Extend trust when you can is an act of courage. That's and tremendous. that would be my single best advice for everybody, especially if you're in a leadership position, extend trust, give people the assumption of doubt, of credibility, of being correct trust that somebody else may see something that you don't see. Well, uh, Leila, I think if there's a, uh, a, a next phase for the, the agility movement, cognitive leadership has to be it, I think, really. Thank you so much. That's a, a tremendous conversation. It, it really, we could go on and on. And I think we'll actually, we'll come back and revisit this again in a future podcast. There's very little doubt in my mind uh, about this. Uh, Leila Rao, thank you very, very much indeed for being with us and for imparting so much wisdom. Uh, and I'm really, really, really pleased that we've been able to have this chat. Thank you, Leila. My pleasure. Thank you for making this space. And I will note, this is an example of being an ally and an advocate. Wow. So thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining us today. And my Really, my special thanks to you for this. It's been a tremendous conversation. Uh, and of course, my thanks to our audience for listening. And please do join the conversation via social media using, using the hashtag Leadership at the Edge, or send a voice message via the podcast page on Anchor. From all of our podcasts and events and lots of other content, visit our website at www.institutelm.com. Subscribe to the podcast series, leave a review and mention us to your colleagues. Thank you, everyone, for listening.